0: Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artisan food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious.
1: A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Every Sunday on this show you'll hear from chefs and artisan food makers, farmers, authors, experts, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. And I know that you are as well, because if you love to cook or love to eat, if you want to live the best life, then I like to say we can definitely be friends. I'll also dish on health and wellness, wine and cocktails, tech trends, and more, so you won't want to miss a show. Please do tune in every Sunday and know that you can always find podcasts of shows you might have missed on iTunes under Food & Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. You can also find me on social, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, and I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. So let's get to this episode. Culinary conversation, shall we? Allow me to feed your soul for this Sunday. We are officially in pumpkin frenzy mode, right? Descending upon the pumpkin patches over the past few weeks to scoop up all those gorgeous gourds. And I must say, they were beautiful this year, sort of funky and different uh, from what I saw. And I will say uh, that. I happen to love the season, Halloween is just a few days away, and those gourds, the pumpkins, the squash, they'll last through winter, and so you should use them up. Now, Americans have been obsessed with pumpkins specifically for quite some time, considering they've been growing in North America for more than 5,000 years. I think we get a little starstruck by the different shapes and sizes and the sort of twisty stems. There are the itty bitty ornamental uh, Jack B. Little variety that you place around the dinner table or as a centerpiece. And I love those um, white miniature pumpkins for decoration, uh, especially for a Thanksgiving table. And then um, there are the melon sized ribbed gourds, they're called. Those are what we carve for Halloween. And then, of course, there are the colossal giants that you find at state fairs. And those are just awe-inspiring. I think they're fun to look at, but I think that pumpkins are even more fun to eat. But when it comes to eating pumpkins, the best tasting tend to belong to the heirloom varieties. So this conversation is to encourage you to cook with pumpkin and not just the canned pumpkin puree, but the whole beast's. Now, there are a variety of pumpkins, aside from the traditional jack-o'-lantern type, which, by the way, does not eat very well, um, but you have others to look for. Sugar pie pumpkins are my favorite. They're smaller than the traditional pumpkins, so they're easier to navigate with a knife, and their flesh cooks up really smooth and really sweet. So I tend to use them for soup and for pie. Now, that said, the carving pumpkins... They're not eating pumpkins. Um, It's the small, thinner-skinned varieties that are known for the sweetness and flavor. So do look for the sugar pie, or depending upon where you live, you might see New England pie. And then there's one called Long Island cheese, which actually got its name from its wheel of curds shape, and it cooks up beautifully as well. And you could eat the carving kind, but it tends to taste more like potato than pumpkin, really. Uh, There are other things, by the way, though, to do with your pumpkins after Halloween, uh, specifically those that you might have used ornamentally and did not carve. So stay tuned because at the end of the hour, I'll share my last bite and you're going to want to make a pumpkin keg. Trust me. Okay, first and foremost, though, with any pumpkin, the first thing that you do, whether you're carving um, or simply roasting, is I suggest you scoop out the seeds because those little kernels are packed with vitamins and minerals, and they're a great source of fiber. So it's a shame to throw them away now to roast and eat them. I like to simply clean the seeds and then I boil them for 10 minutes To soften them because I find that they are extraordinarily fibrous um, and I like a little less chew. Anywhere between five to 10 minutes of a simmer on those seeds in just plain water is really perfect. Then you drain them and dry them on paper towels and you toss them with a little bit of oil and spread them out on a baking sheet in a 350 degree oven. And they take about 30 minutes and they get crisp and golden browned. And I like to add a bit of flavor. Sometimes I will sprinkle salts and pink peppercorns or smoked paprika or cinnamon sugar, whatever inspires you. When you add the oil, you add the seasoning and then it really bakes in. Now, as for the flesh, you can use pumpkin in place of any recipe that calls for squash. So I like to roast cubes of pumpkin until they're tender, much like you would butternut squash, and then uh, top it with some crumbled goat cheese and maybe some fried sage leaves, and it makes a really scrumptious side dish. And if you have roasted pumpkin left over from when you cubed it and roasted it, you can puree it until uh, until it's smooth. And then you could add a little bit to your pancake batter and flavor it with cinnamon and warm spices and nutmeg and some pecans for crunch and then douse the whole thing in real maple syrup and you'd have pumpkin pancakes. Oh, yes. I think that's reason enough to roast a pumpkin, don't you? <laughs> you can also blend any roasted pumpkin that gets all caramelized and delicious and isn't eaten as a side dish, um, effortlessly blend it into a thick velvety soup. I'll usually caramelize some onions or shallots and then I'll add the pumpkin add um, good chicken stock or vegetable broth if you prefer, Um, sometimes a little bit of cream. I like to keep that color bright. Now, I will say uh, as a substitute for the cream, the most fabulous flavor comes from coconut milk and maybe a little fresh or dried ginger. And you really have a beautiful pumpkin soup for your next dinner party. And you could top it with some crispy pancetta so the salty pancetta offsets the sweetness of the soup and it's oh so good how about making pumpkin butter for a quick and easy pumpkin butter you combine pureed roasted pumpkin with softened butter until it's well blended and then you spread it on toast and you sit down to breakfast um, and you just appreciate fall for sure Uh, this actually leads me to a quick mention Uh, There is no shame in store-bought pumpkin puree, and you can make this pumpkin butter or the pumpkin soup I mentioned or uh, the pumpkin pancakes using canned pumpkin puree as well. I encourage you, though, to buy pure pumpkin puree and look for the word on the can because it makes a difference. Now, I like to mix uh, roasted cubes of pumpkin into risotto perfect for the Italian lovers. Um, And it makes a really luxurious textural uh, sort of dichotomy there. You can use it as a filling for ravioli, puree it with ricotta cheese and put it into wonton wrappers and dinner's ready. And last but not least, whip up a batch of homemade pumpkin bread using homemade roasted pumpkin and you will be the forever friend of your neighbors or (laughs) any gift you consider giving. Um, I have all the recipes aforementioned at chefjamie.com and I do hope you will check them out of course. I also posted at chefjamie.com have half a dozen ways to use up Halloween candy because Halloween will come and go and you might Just be left with a cauldron of candy. So what is a great cook to do? Well, I rounded up my best ideas and inspiration for candy bar milkshakes and candy bark and homemade candy caramel corn. And all the good things like candy bar cupcakes that you should be doing so that you don't sit like me and eat all the Kit Kats out of the leftover bowl of Halloween candy. You'll always find me serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com. And then it's time for food news for this weekend. Oh, the humble bagel, how far you have come. Thanks to USA Today, in a piece that I read uh, just this past week, Uh, I will say it might be the most expensive bagel any of us have ever heard of because it is a $1,000 bagel. Yes, the Westin New York Hotel in Times Square is bringing back something they introduced 10 years ago that contains white truffle-infused cream cheese and is sprinkled with gold leaf. So, so far I'm in, right? Well, they actually uh, invented it in 2007. And then every fall they get requests. So they brought it back. They sourced white truffles from Alba in Northern Italy. And they toast what is, I understand, a true New York bagel as it should be. And then they top it with this truffle cream cheese. And then it has um, an acai jelly and a gold flake. And yes, it is $1,000. Now, the Blingy Bagel does uh, better the community. They are giving back. 100% of the proceeds go to the Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen, which is the city's largest emergency food program uh, in New York. And so for that, we commend them. But it's a $1,000 bagel. I just don't know. And of course, do not touch your dial because there is lots more scintillating Culinary conversation coming up. Uh, Also, a conversation on happiness, which I'm really excited to have. New York Times bestselling author Dan Buettner is stopping by to feed your soul. His Blue Zones of Happiness book has just released to great acclaim. And yes, um, we touch on everything to live the best life on this show. Coming up next, he is my friend, Chef Joel Gameron. And he is the host of the Scraps TV show, which I love. Before the end of the hour, we're shaking up some autumn cocktails with Tony Abuganum so we have a full plate. Don't touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here with informative, entertaining, and inspiring culinary conversation in your radio every Sunday. Growing up, we followed the waste-not-want-not rule. My mom, of course, used up leftovers like a pro. She reinvented dishes to make scrumptious new meals. Today, according to new statistics, 40% of the food supply is wasted in the U.S., And we are all responsible. Well, there is this wonderfully engaging, warm personality a chef who is doing something about it. He is named Joel Gameron, and he is the national chef for Sir La Table. And if you haven't watched Scraps, oh, you are missing out. His new TV series on the FYI network puts Joel in a new city where he partners with chefs and food waste champions to create impromptu dinner parties using the food that you probably throw in the trash. Joel Gameron in your radio. I'm so glad to have you. Hi, Chef.
2: Hey, Chef Jamie. (laughs) I'm so thrilled to be here. Well,
1: thank you. And I find the show mesmerizing. So share, if you would, a little bit of backstory and how scraps came to be.
2: I was in a class with a bunch of home cooks and I was looking in their trash bins and they were filled over the brim with shrimp shells and onion peels Mm. and cucumber seeds and all the things we totally throw away. And, Jamie, you know, you went, you're professionally trained, and you're a chef. and
1: Yes, we, we share, an alma, and yeah, share an alma mater. You and I share an alma mater, CIA, that's right. And, by the way, the carrot peels, they yeah. drive me bonkers, too.
2: They drive all of us chefs bonkers. I mean, we look at that, and we were taught to use everything or else our restaurants would go under. But right. at home, we throw everything away. So that was kind of the light bulb moment. Um, and that was kind of the turning point of I got to do something about this.
1: Okay, do you want to tell everyone about Pippi or shall I? She. It, I think you shall. I <laughs> want to hear
2: what your perspective on Pippi. Is. Well, no,
1: it sounds like you have another appendage, but but you don't. <laughs> okay, I love I love this idea. So, Pippi came to be because you have a VW bus that's been transformed into a mobile kitchen, and it is made for quite an adventure, because everyone knows you're coming, Joel.
2: Absolutely. and That's the idea, is we wanted to be a little bit loud, a little bit out of the box, but every element of the show, including Pippi, which was a VW van in 1963, but has been kind of rotting in a in a barn for the past 40 years, was overlooked, and it was... Underutilized, and that's how we feel like scraps are. You know, everything comes back to overlooked and maybe passed by, and how can you uh, recreate it, and give it life? And so, Pippi represents what we're trying to do with the ingredients.
1: Okay, let's start, if we could, and, and it's certainly not to challenge you, but to come up with some ideas for everyday scraps so that mm. food lovers that are listening can make better use of waste. Aside Absolutely. from your roadside foraging in some places, uh, you know, you're making the best of a strawberry farm, but for all of us at home, we have broccoli stems, for instance. Correct. You make broccoli slaw, right? Which I love. Yes. Uh, you yes. can make broccoli soup. Inspire us. What else comes to mind? Well, you
2: take a broccoli stem, just for that example, and you peel it back and you slice that thin and it's almost like a water chestnut. Yes. So I love, love broccoli stems and stir fries. I think they're fantastic. Like you said, in soups or braises, they're awesome. They hold their texture and they're really, really flavorful. So I just think they have so much more personality than a lot of the other vegetables. And that's what I think is so cool about scraps is we all have broccoli and we all tasted it a million times, but you eat the stem and it's like a new vegetable. It's kind Mm -hmm. of like a rediscovery, but you have it in your kitchen already.
1: So that's what I love about this. I have to agree with you. I also think that you're improving our palates when we learn to use up those scraps because some of the scraps, like the broccoli stems, for instance, have Mm. a whole newfound texture and oftentimes they're very textural and I happen to love the crunch or love the, the smoothness that comes from the peels or the, uh, let's say fennel or celery root tops. There's something sure. very unique about that herbaceousness. And I really feel like you've Im- improved our palates when you take one step beyond the basic vegetable and you rethink its uses.
2: I, think you, I thank you for saying that. And I think that, um, It enhances the vegetable. You know, like, for example, butternut squash. Okay. We all throw away the outer shell. Yes. We all cut it away. We almost cut our fingers off trying to get that thing (laughs) off. That's true. And then when it finally comes off, it finds the trash. But if you take those butternut squash shells and if you cover them with a little bit of water and just simmer them for 45 minutes, you have a butternut squash stock. And why wouldn't you use that in your butternut squash soup to make it taste more butternut squash-y? So it enhances the flavors. It really, besides bringing in, like you said, new textures and, and new flavors, it actually just adds to whatever you're making. So it's the way that we chefs make food taste so great in restaurants. It's, it's piling it on top of each other and giving it kind of different layers. I'm curious, Jamie, of what what scraps you have in your kitchen typically, and then I want to try and make something out of it. I want to, what do you usually have on hand?
1: Well, you and I come from the same chef's background. So like you with the butternut squash, you know, I use the corn cobs uh, to make corn stock like that. Um, Oh, okay. Let's see. What if I told you I bought the most beautiful um, carrots, rainbow carrots at the farmer's market and I, I bought a lot of them because we were feeding a crowd and I was roasting carrots and then um, maple butter glazing them Oof, with, ooh, with a, a little bit of sriracha in the glaze so you get sweet heat. Oh, they're so good. You should come love over. That. Yeah, you should yes. come over. I'll make those. Um, but that what is. do you do with the carrot tops? We'll, we'll swap ideas. Any, any great top-of-the-mind thoughts?
2: Yeah, I'm obsessed with making a salsa verde with it. And I'm actually really into right now studying all the cuts of meat that we've been throwing away. Oh, nice. So I just found this amazing new cut called the oyster cut. It's on the top of a steak that always goes home with the butcher. It's always thrown away. It's a little bit tough, but it's really great when you salt it before you cook it. And I did a carrot top salsa verde with it that literally blew my wife away. She was just, you know, couldn't believe how delicious it was. So I'm into kind of salsa verdes and pestos in that world, but there's so much you could do. What do you do with yours?
1: Wait, I want to know how to make the salsa verde. What else is in it? (laughs) Hold on a second. (laughs) Um,
2: Always, always. uh, So I go a little Italian with it because I studied in Italy as well. So always a little caper, some anchovy. Always save that anchovy oil. It's amazing how much we throw that away. Just the oil inside the tin. I mean, when making a Caesar salad or any sort of dressing, that oil is gold.
1: Very smart. Always a little bit of
2: that. Very smart. shallot. And I know this seems weird. This is goes back to your first question, Jamie, of like, w- w- what are these scraps that people have on hand? Shallot skin, like the actual peel of a shallot, is incredible if you grind it up. If you just put it in a cuisinart or a food processor, it will break up and it will crisp beautifully and be completely edible. So you don't have to peel that shallot. So in, in a sauce like this, it actually works.
1: Joel Gameron, the national chef for Sur La is hosting a program that will teach you to save your scraps. Yes, broccoli stems make brilliant slaw and ice cream from bruised bananas and stale bread with a second life you can make a difference. You can watch episodes of Scraps on fyi.tv online. You can look for the FYI channel on your television. And you can follow Joel at joelgameron.com. Joel, will you come back again as you create new wonderful ways to use it up so that we can continue to make a difference in our own homes and our own kitchens?
2: Are you kidding? I, I would, would love it. I adore that. Okay, I would good. I love
1: that. I can't wait. You will hear Joel Gameron right here in your radio And making every day delicious. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in Your Radio, and there is more fabulous food right after this. Feeding Your Soul every Sunday. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in Your Radio. New York Times bestselling author Dan Buettner has dedicated the last 15 plus years of his life to helping people live healthier, more fulfilling lives. I am a great fan of his work, which has taken him around the globe where he's met people of all ages and experiences to better understand how they live, eat, and socialize and how these factors contribute to their overall health and longevity. This work has resulted in 3 New York Times best-selling books, all of which I have read, and it inspired Dan to launch the largest preventative healthcare system in America called the Blue Zones Project, which is now established and thriving in 42 cities across the US. Well, Dan's newest book has just released, and I can't wait to get to the end. It is entitled The Blue Zones of Happiness, and he is back to dish. Yes, Blue Zones author Dan Buettner is here. Welcome back, Dan. How are you?
3: Well, I'm excited to be here.
1: Okay, so you've searched the world for those that live the longest and thrive the most through community and we know multiple variables, but now you have found some surprising secrets, I should say, of the world's happiest places. So uh, where are they, and how do we get there?
3: This really is a big project for National Geographic, and, and you really have to hold your feet to the fire on science. So we got our hands on data that represents about 95% of the human population, and it was mostly statistical work to identify the verifiably happiest pockets in the world. And like longevity, if you can identify the most extraordinary populations who have the outcome that we want, you can then use different scientific methodologies to reverse engineer it. So the Blue Zone books, which we've talked about before on longevity, found the longest lived, and now... Now uh, this book, Blue Zones of Happiness, looks at the three happiest places in the world and goes back from there.
1: Yes, and those three places we should all plan a trip to are? So
3: I want to be careful on that. You should go there, yes. Yes. But the caveat is the reason we pick them is when it comes to happiness, uh, academically speaking, it's a meaningless term because you Mm. can't measure, but you can measure how satisfied you are with your life. Yes. Uh, Scale 1 to 10, you can measure uh, your daily emotions, uh, how much joy and and laughter you have. And you can measure the level of purpose people have by asking them if they're using their strengths to do what they do best every day. And then taking this data, so we found the place where people have the highest purpose in northern Denmark. Mm -hmm. It also has some of the best food in the world. The great joke about Denmark (laughs) is if you ever see a guy coming at you with a knife, you can be pretty sure he's got a fork in the other hand. And, and then the, the um, happiest place when it comes to life satisfaction, uh, looking at your life in the rearview mirror and being proud, that's uh, Singapore. And then uh, as far as enjoying day, every day, moment to moment, uh, positive emotions, we found the happiest place in Cartago, Costa Rica.
1: And I have had the privilege of visiting two of those three places. Uh, You certainly hit the hot button for me. You know me, Dan. If there's great food there, I will travel, (laughs) right? Uh, But I thought it was interesting in um, starting another great read of yours that you call them strands, these connectors of happiness, these wonderful places uh, that find people content have three things, three Ps in common, pleasure, purpose, and pride, right?
3: So each of the, Three aforementioned places highlight one of those three. I use the academic terms when I just explained it to you, but you're right. It's actually purpose, that would be Denmark, pride, Singapore, Mm. and pleasure, that would be Costa Rica. And they demonstrate it uh, in great ways. So when it comes to our personal happiness, you want to have a diversified portfolio. You want to kind of balance off all three of those types of happiness. And, for example, making money. Yes, it's wor- it's worth it to make money to increase your happiness, but only until you have enough to cover your needs, food, shelter, health care, a chance to treat yourself every once in a while, go to a nice restaurant, take your friends out. But after that, uh, killing yourself to make more money, like too many Americans do, uh, is, is the wrong way to go. You should be focusing on volunteering. You should be focusing on your friends, um, having people over socializing five to six hours a day. That's what the world's happiest people do.
1: Fascinating. I I will say there is a pleasure in the purpose. And I think about that often, the camaraderie, the uh, philanthropy, those things that I say very often on this show fall under the category of feeding your soul. There is a, a happiness test a Blue Zones happiness test to be more specific that you've developed to pinpoint areas in our lives that we could adjust to bring more happiness. Give us a, a couple practical uh, ideas of that, if you would, so that we can test sure. our happiness.
3: So it's at the BlueZones.com website. It's called the True Happiness Test. And I ask the protocol questions for each of purpose, pride, and pleasure. And I rank you on a nationwide curve, so I'll give you a grade, but then I'll give you customized suggestions. So depending on where your deficits are, mm. I'm going to ask you to amp up. Mm. Uh, but in general, there's a few things. And, and I know we, you, we talk a lot about food on this show. Yes. So I'll tell you a few things about food. So first of all, if you're having five to seven uh, uh, servings of fruits and vegetables every day, uh, you're about 20% more likely to be happy than if you're not eating. Mm. Uh, when you look at the happiest cities in America, we did this, so 1.5 million surveys and then um, uh, assess the the quality of the food environment. If you live in a place where there's easy access to fruits and vegetables and not too many hamburgers, pizza joints, and fries, you're, mm. you're more likely to be happy. So a healthy food environment, hugely correlative to to happiness health and happiness go hand in hand
1: yes and that's that healing property so that that means i'm in the right field dan you are
3: and that you you and i I... like you (laughs) unleash a a tsunami of happiness (laughs)
1: thank you every sunday oh you flatter me but you and i together we're we're a good combination that way we're talking the blue zones of happiness the follow-up to the book the blue zones new york times best-selling author dan buettner is here and there's more after the break We're back and we're dishing to feed your soul. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The new release from New York Times bestselling author Dan Buettner, The Blue Zones of Happiness is everyone's new must read. I thought it was wonderful because one of the things I love about your writing is that you definitely take it to a very personal level. And in assessing the world's happiness, there were lessons to be learned that you you know very much applied to yourself and to share with us so the happiness power 9 that's
3: the last chapter of blue zones of happiness and i i recruited an international team of the best experts on the planet to rank in order of out of 150 commonly known strategies to get happier to pick the the 9 that were most effective and most feasible, and I'll just give you a couple. Okay. So the first one is is carefully curating your social network. Mm-hmm. Unhappiness is contagious. Loneliness is contagious. If you go to dinner with a lonely person, that you come away feeling more lonely than if you'd eaten alone. So mm-hmm. picking four to five friends, we call it a Moai, it's an Okinawan term, who have do the three following things. Number one, uh, you like them. Number two, you can have a meaningful conversation with them on a daily basis. And number three, you can call them on a bad day and they'll care. And and creating this network really requires that effort. And it's not something that's commonly known as a happiness strategy, but it's probably the most powerful thing you can do for the long term to stack the deck in favor of happiness.
1: Thank you for bringing insight and a dose of happiness to our day. Um, I will continue to read your prose and support your uh, preventative uh, directives and measures because I, I do believe that a happier nation is a more peaceful one. And we very much appreciate your research. Congratulations on another bestseller, Dan.
3: Thank you for sharing your day with
1: me. Yes, of course. Thank you. Packed with fresh new insights and lots of incredible research and data about the evolving field of happiness. The blue zones of happiness by Dan Buettner will take you on a wonderful journey of discovery. It is a blueprint for a happy life. And the book is available now everywhere. The blue zones of happiness by Dan Buettner. I just might mention something delicious coming up after the break that will make you happy as well. So don't touch your dial. There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Cheers to autumn. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're having a cocktail party today, so grab a sweater, grab your glass, and sit out on the porch because autumnal cocktails are perfect for the crisp days of fall. Our resident mixologist, Tony Abuganam, is back, and we've got your fall cocktail needs covered. Tony is widely regarded as a pioneer and leader in the bar world. He is the author of The Modern Mixologist, Contemporary Classic Cocktails, and Vodka Distilled, both award-winning books. You've seen him win three Iron Chef competitions on the Food Network, and he's taking us on a cocktail journey again today. An intensive, I like to call it, to arm you with a wealth of knowledge when it comes to spirits, and I'm so glad to have you back, Tony. Hi, and happy fall.
0: Well, Jamie, always great to be back on the show, and happy fall to you.
1: Thank you. Okay, you've been quenching your thirst with rye whiskey lately, I understand. Is that right?
0: Well, it's amazing what has happened in the rye whiskey, the American whiskey category yes. overall, but rye in particular. It wasn't that long ago, Jamie, that you'd look back and most distillers would spill more bourbon than they would make rye. Um, <laughs> and with the resurgence of the classic cocktails and bartenders really embracing rye whiskey once again, it has just skyrocketed into popularity. And, you know, new brands are available uh, almost weekly. And mm. it's just so exciting to see all these great rye whiskeys uh, coming back to the glass uh, and finding their way into cocktails.
1: What can we shake up or stir together or toast with for fall?
0: Well, you mentioned cider. And when I was a a young man,
1: a young lad,
0: a a young lad growing (laughs) up in uh, Port Huron, Michigan, a lot of apple orchards around Port Huron. So, you know, in the fall and early winter, you know, we'd bundle up and the family would go out to the orchards and we'd drink hot apple cider and they'd make those Warm cinnamon and sugar donuts, and they just come right out of the grease. And you'd have that with the apple cider, and it was Uh. just, you know, such an amazing memory. And again, those flavors work so well. So when I was writing uh, my first book, The Modern Mixologist, I wanted to celebrate that time of year. So I thought, what better than to do a spiced cider toddy, uh, something that's hot? And, Mm. you know, Michigan fall. Winter is a little different than it is here.
1: Uh, <laughs> Southern California where you and I live or <laughs> Vegas where you've made home, right. But we still get some
0: chilly nights. So, you know, you put a pot of this cider on and you kind of just let it fill the room with these beautiful smells of, you know, vanilla and cinnamon and apple. Mm. And what I do, and it takes a little bit of prethought pre-thought to go into this because I make a homemade rock and rye. And Rock and Rye is another one of those lost and forgotten classic spirit liqueurs that you really can't buy commercially. There are a couple brands, but it's so fun to make. And I found this uh, old recipe in The Gentleman's Companion from 1946 to make your own Rock and Rye. Hmm. So I used uh, Bullet Rye rock candy, the actual rock candy, about a pound of rock candy to a, a fifth of bullet rye, uh, and then a little bit of Jamaican rum, and then I spice it with cloves and cinnamon stick, and I cut up an orange and a lemon, and I bottle that, I put it in a cool place and let it set for a fortnight, which uh, <laughs> translates to two weeks.: Yes.: And at the end of that, you have this just beautiful, spiced and citrusy, almost it becomes a liqueur from the sugar. And that is the base to my spiced cider toddy.
1: Will you come back next month and share some nogs? I'd love to talk about nog for the December holiday season. And I know you make a pumpkin nog uh, that is much talked about, in fact. So if you'll share the recipe and grace us with your cocktail presence next month, we will continue the uh, mixology conversation. Well...
0: I would I would love to Jamie you. because you know they say the holidays are not properly observed unless you brew nog for all comers.
1: I love it. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll meet you back here. Uh, for December Nog, and in the interim, we'll follow your cocktail escapades at themodernmixologist.com. He is Tony Ganum. and you can always email me at jamie at chefjamie.com for Tony's fall cocktail recipes. I'll post them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Cheers, Tony. Thank you, and here's to cool nights and uh, warm toddies.
0: Cheers and happiness. Jamie,
1: And so that brings us to the end of another hour of inspiration and conversation. And here it is my last bite. I promised it at the start of this show. It is my best idea for fall festivities. It is a pumpkin keg. Yes. You heard me right. A pumpkin kegger. You can pay proper homage to the season by featuring a pumpkin keg at all your fall fiestas. I'm serious. It's fabulous. And because Halloween, just a few days away, hopefully brought some ornamental pumpkins to uh, your front door, those that you have not carved yet, here is the best use. You need a pumpkin. You hollow it out by cutting a circle out of the top like you would for a jack-o'-lantern. But again, the pumpkin needs to be whole and fully intact. No eyes or mouth cut out. Then um, you clean out the inside a little bit, scrape the seeds, uh, and you go to uh, your restaurant supply store and you buy an inexpensive spigot. Costs about two bucks. And you make another small hole about two inches from the bottom of the pumpkin to insert the spigot. And then you fill the pumpkin with beer or punch and you put that lid back on. And yes, you are a culinary hero. Now I will post pictures and a tutorial of my pumpkin keg, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'm always serving up seconds, so you'll find recipes galore at chefjamie.com. And most importantly, I hope to meet you here next Sunday when there is more delicious conversation in your radio. A very happy Halloween to you. I hope that you have a delicious week and that you continue to eat well.